generally, I don't care to, uh, to go to conferences, especially with uh, people in my own denomination. Uh, they tend to be very curmudgeonly. What I do like is uh, I like to uh, go to, uh, I like to say that I went to a conference. And did you go to that conference too? That I tend to enjoy. Uh, this, this conference, I have enjoyed every minute, every moment. Uh, usually when a speaker speaks, it takes a lot of energy, and you might feel tired from it. I have actually felt that I have received energy at this conference. Uh, far from feel, feeling tired, I feel stronger. And so that, that means a great deal to me, and so I want to thank you for that. I also want to thank Dr. Zoll for his outstanding presentation uh, yesterday. Um, he, uh, he reminds me a little bit of Dr. Phil's Get Real. And uh, I say that as a compliment, because I think there is, there is yes, there is, there is much, uh, uh, anybody that follows Dr. Phil, you're going to encounter things that are, that are kind of silly, but when Dr. Phil is good, he is really good. And uh, uh, Dr. Zoll is always good. And he has given us a criteria, and that criteria is reality. And I think we should be very grateful to him for that. Um, so, with those words, what I'd like to do is very quickly, if you could take this handout uh, called uh, How to Tell the Difference Between Law and Gospel. And uh, let's look at this really quickly. Um, my colleague, Dr. Ken Sundit Jones, who I work with, uh, wrote this, although he and I both worked together um, in the discussion just before he wrote this. Uh, pinpointing the law's presence as he uh, writes, a watch for the should. Two, keep an eye open for the first commandment. Three, ask who's in charge of making it happen. Four, and this we heard so clearly yesterday, look for death lurking in the shadows. And let's read that because sinners keep thinking they're in charge and can use their will to create a good future for themselves. God lets the demands of the law of life bear down on us. When you feel like life is just about what? What? What's he right there? Killing. Yeah, do you not have copies? Oh. What's that? It'll be posted on the website. Sorry. Sorry for that. That's okay. Everybody don't be confused. It's That's okay. Yeah. Uh, when you feel that like life is just about killing you, you can be pretty sure it's God's law ripping at your heels. And then the second part is getting hit by the gospel. First one is listen for the promise. Second one, expect a radical surprise from Jesus. And I'll read that for explanation. We sinners should never expect the good news of Jesus. We should only expect judgment from God, but instead the gospel brings mercy from Jesus to sinners. Three, look for the you, which we heard so eloquently yesterday. The gospel is always spoken directly to sinners. If what you hear doesn't use the word you, it could be a good description about God or Jesus. But it's not quite the gospel, for the gospel says it straight out, 
you are forgiven. Or, Jesus died for you. And then four, use your hindsight. Uh, If you've been changed by God's word, uh, you'll begin to see God's faithfulness in spite of what you see around you in the world. If it's caused you to trust God, even though the world says you're a loser, then you can be sure that you've been hit by the gospel. And then there's some more there. So I'm grateful this will be posted on uh, the website. How about this one? Did you get this little sheet uh, with all the little checks? Yeah, that's fine. That's great. Yeah. This, will this be posted too? Okay. Uh, if you do this, you can send it to me and I'll get put a grade on it, mail it back to you. Maybe we can give you some credits for it. Uh, but this is really fun, actually. And uh, there are trick questions on this. It says, Law or Gospel, for each of the statements below, decide if it's a word of law or word of gospel. So first one, the moral of the story is dot, dot, dot. Is that law or is that gospel? Law, yes. Uh, yeah. You guys get this down. You're getting this down. Okay. Well, there's a lot of, I think, a lot of fun ones in this. And so I'm going to back away uh, from that. I urge you to look at it um, and uh, from, the, uh, from the website. You do have these notes. Luther is pastoral theologian, Yes. This is a great concern of my part. Um, I am deeply dismayed and have been dismayed for a long time that so much of academic theology is so, what, academic, (laughs) and doesn't connect. Uh, A lot of professors are far more loyal to the American Academy of Religion or the Society of Biblical Literature, and not so loyal to... Uh, ultimately the people who are paying their salaries which come from congregations. And it seems to me that in theology we need to be very concerned about how rubber hits the road. So uh, for me, all all theology needs at some level to be pastoral. At some level it needs to be focused on, uh, well, reality, where people are at. Um, So I'm going to walk through this here. Luther is pastoral theologian. Luther finds in Psalm 119 three rules for the proper way to study theology. And these three rules are prayer, meditation, and spiritual trial or spiritual attack. And to live as a Christian in the church Catholic. To enter into the word of Holy Scripture driven by spiritual attack in German, Anfechtung to pray for illumination, and to let Scripture interpret us. We are not primarily or fundamentally the interpreters of Scripture. It is Scripture which is interpreting us, orienting our lives, accusing us, forgiving us, providing us new life, giving us hope. It is Scripture which interprets us. For Luther, knowledge finally is a relation between the sinful human and the God who justifies. And that is the only uh, subject matter or object of theology. What's crucial for Luther is not the scholastic theology of disputation, of which he was an expert, But it is intertwined 
with the monastic or liturgical aspect of theology. That is, the approach to theology which developed over hundreds and hundreds of years in the monastic community. And that uh, was focused upon oratio, prayer, meditatio, which is meditation upon the Holy Scriptures. And what Luther also saw was spiritual attack. That is, as was said so very clearly yesterday, that in encountering God outside of faith, we will encounter a God who attacks us as an old Adam or an old Eve. To center our lives in this monastic or liturgical theology, we find ourselves with a pastoral use of scripture then. And this does, in fact, affect all of human life. It influences our affects, that is, our emotions, our senses, our desires, and our imagination. And this happens as we meditate upon the text and listen to the preached word. This is an act which is also central for Luther's approach to theology, which is deeply catechetical. Luther distinguishes between sinners who feel their sins, peccator sensatus, and those who are unaware of their sins, peccator insensatus. And he also talks about a principle of individuation, principium individuationis, where, as we remember from the scriptures, as we confess before God, against you, you only, have I sinned. There the sinner is exposed, as we see with so many examples in the Holy Scriptures. When we pray, we are to confess that God is right, because God in Jesus Christ is faithful and true. We ascribe righteousness to God. We attribute God's justice to him. There is a disassociation or disconnection between God and humans who are fatally separated. Yet in this separation, the naked God is there with humans in their nakedness. The naked God is God in his terrifying, absolute majesty. But we can have nothing to do with this God, no control over him whatsoever. We cannot handle him. We cannot deal with him, manipulate him, or control him. We cannot speak to him, and we even cannot believe in him. God is indeed God in himself in his substance, in his nature, in his person, as triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God is also God in relation to the world and to us, by speaking to us and addressing us. God addresses us in the word of promise, so that we 
can respond in faith and trust, in assurance of his goodness for us. In the commentary on Romans, uh, Luther mentions that uh, in his nature, in God's nature, we can neither justify nor condemn God. However, God permits both in his word. As it said there, it, God's word, is condemned by those who want to be self-righteous, and it is justified by sinners. In his 1531 lectures on Galatians, Luther goes so far to say that faith is the creator of the deity, not with respect to his person, but only ourselves. God wants nothing else than that I make God. Or as he puts it, it is the trust and faith of the heart alone that make both God and an idol. What Luther is saying is to walk by faith, and to walk by faith is not to walk by sight. It's not because it's evidential that God loves the ragamuffin, the sinner, but it's claiming God's promise. And in doing so, God, who is God in himself, we honor as Father, as his children. Faith and God do not belong together because there is a general basic unity between them outside the word. For the phrase, to make God deum facere, means to give him, to attribute to him, what is his. We can only speak of God's attributes in the context of a verbal exchange in Sir Monibus Tuus. In this verbal exchange, which is a life and death struggle for mutual recognition, which was pointed out so crystal clear and truthfully to us yesterday. Faith attributes God's deity to God. And in this sense, we can say faith is the creator of the deity. Fides est creatrix divinitatis. Unbelief, however, makes itself an idolater. In other words, all human beings, all human beings, at some point or some level, are like Jacob at the Jabbok. They are in conflict with God. Even stronger than that, all human beings will find themselves at some point hating God. Bitter, resentful, and angry. Hating God. They will struggle with God. They will claim something to this effect. Had I been there at the creation of the world, I could have given God some pretty good advice. I have a list of people that if I were God, I would never have made. And God chose to make all these people that Mattis would never 
have consented to. God in his wisdom and Mattis in his folly. God in his wisdom. God is indeed, as said yesterday, acting in all actions upon you. God is even working through those other ragamuffins that you don't care for. Also shaping you to be a person of faith. To give God the glory which is due his name is not because we are able to produce a perfect family. The kid who always gets to play first base or always gets the highest scores on the SAT or the ACT. To give God the glory which is due him is to say, Lord, you are in charge. I attribute your deity to you and I let go. I trust you. You are indeed wise and good, and I can trust your promise. Christ's office and work is to put an end to the conflict between the naked God and sinful humans, to turn us from being people of hate, to turn us from being people who hold life in either fear or contempt. Because that's what grace does. That person who would hold life in contempt. Or that person who would be so afraid to actually live life. God's law is at work to break that person down. So the new person who can say, yes, to life. Back to that yes, through which all of God's promises find their affirmation. And thus to ascribe God's deity to God. So Christ's office and work is to put an end to the conflict between the naked God and sinful humans and to overcome such a fatal confrontation. If you're going to have that kind of confrontation with God, who's, who only can win? Who only can win? So that God can speak to sinners and mercifully rescue them. He saves them from death and from being curved in on themselves which is the origin of idolatry, whatever that idolatry might be. Luther avoids the Aristotelian alternatives, which in theology is either, is it all about action or all about contemplation? Is theology finally a practical discipline, action, or a speculative discipline? Instead, he sees theology as an event in a path that is so different from anything else that it deserves to have its own name. The receptive life. The vita passiva. The receptive or passive life. Now, ironically, that is quorum deo. That is before God. That we end up with such receptivity as people of faith. The truth is, of course, we are receptive all along because we are always 
every moment and at all times, receiving our being from God. That is, in, that is what is always true. But the sinner will always contest with God. In faith, we are set free from that struggle. In the receptive life, God is the active subject and the Christian is the object of God's action. The Christian life, therefore, is passive in the sense that it suffers. It undergoes God's work and so passively receives it. That is Coram Deo, often Coram Mundo, before the world. We are ever active. Before God, we let go of our struggle. But that doesn't mean that we don't often struggle legitimately in the world for the sake of the world. In the world for the sake of the world. In the church for the sake of the church. The receptive life is connected with a particular experience, one which we heard so vividly and truthfully yesterday. Because I hope you're aware of the statistics. 50% of all Americans will encounter a debilitating depression. Debilitating. And the other 50% chances are will encounter a depression. What's also quite amazing to me is all the major river systems one can detect antidepressants in our country. We are leaking these antidepressants out of us and it's getting into the water system. And that's why I feel Dr. Zoll's presentation yesterday was so potent and so helpful because it does push us towards this reality that we would not want to look at. As Luther puts it, it is by living, no, not living, but by dying and giving ourselves up to hell, or as other translations put it, being damned, that we become theologians. Not by understanding, reading, and speculating. Of course, reading, understanding, and speculating are involved. So, ratio, meditatio, tentatio. But what makes us to be a theologian is experience. The righteousness of faith, then, is receptive or passive because we let God do his work in us. I experience faith by letting God work in me, getting out of the way, and let God come. And such experience of faith is indeed painful because it is the death of the old Adam or old Eve. And this is not mere picture language. In Genesis 6.5 and 8.21, in Luther's commentary late in his career, the human being is seen as a, quote, rational being with a fabricating heart, continually produces images in the mind, in other words, idols. Unquote. 
concepts of metaphysics in particular can become idols, but political ideologies are just as vulnerable and just as apt to be used. The old Adam or old Eve loves to turn the gospel, which is a promise, into a theory. If it can't be turned into a theory, let's turn it into a set of moral principles. Wisdom, the sapientia experimentalis, the path that united theory and practice and grounds both in the third thing, an experiential life, a receptive life, that can indeed be inclusive of the scientific impulse, the quest for knowledge, which we see in the university at its best. But I think it subverts Aristotle's view of reason. As Aristotle put it, the rule of many is not good. Let one be the ruler, and that ruler would be reason. And so all departments of the university which are in conflict, if they can be subordinate to human progress, or if they can be subordinate to an encyclopedia of truth, then the university would be justified in what it does. The response of William of Ockham in the 14th century to Aristotle was, there is not just one king, but many kings. And so he provides a counter metaphor, a plurality which is built into the quest for knowledge itself. And that we should not be surprised if all the various truths for which the science's quest cannot this side of the eschaton be fully put into one system or theory. Theology is not primarily a study of principles, but a study then of history and experience. For Aristotle, nothing historical or empirical or experiential can be the object or even the ground of science. But for Luther, theology is infinite wisdom because it can never be fully learned bottom line of theology, it is always interpretation of scripture as that scripture interprets us. And as we find worlds upon worlds within the scriptures which orient our lives from the quasi-nihilism of Ecclesiastes to the rich romance found in the Song of Songs to the lament in Jeremiah, to the narrative of Joseph, where God is so ever active and yet not mentioned, to the choice for Hosea of a prostitute, for the incredible vivid imagery of apocalyptic and its insight into the struggle that not just the individual goes through with God, but which humanity as a whole goes through. To the wisdom found in Proverbs, which you almost have to get to my age to see. The incredible power of the Holy Scriptures to 
frame our lives. As Luther calls it, it's a divine Aeneid, an inexhaustible book of experience. Oratio, prayer, meditatio, meditation upon the Holy Scriptures, tintatio, the spiritual attack that we cannot avoid, occurs in the midst of tumult, in the midst of a universal, violent, and immense battle, which apocalyptic so fully helps us understand. A battle which rages from the beginning to the end of the world, and for which no whistling could make go away. To distinguish law and gospel, which we encounter in the scriptures, is a pastoral discernment. To afflict the comforted. To expose their powerlessness. The critique of religion indirectly Dr. Zoll gave us yesterday. So very powerful. People especially want to use religion in those ways that Marx and Freud criticized it for, as a sugar pill. Jesus Christ is no sugar pill. Fully God, fully human, risen from the dead. Through him, Through him, we can echo back yes to God in this yes that Jesus Christ is himself. To distinguish law and gospel, to afflict the comfortable, to comfort the afflicted, and those who are afflicted, whether it be through guilt or the confusion that responds from the hiddenness. Not that God is ever absent because God never is absent, but because God is not always clear. To comfort those in that need. This is a pastoral discernment learned through study of the scriptures, learned through powerful and faithful mentoring of good and faithful pastors and faithful lay leaders and learned in one's own experience itself as one undergoes such attack and trial and comes to the end of one's rope where God alone is the answer and in such death as Dr. Zoll says we encounter resurrection As long as philosophy wants to control theology, then there will be a strife between the disciplines, between the faculties, and theology will need to contradict it. We will therefore have to develop our theology in conflict with philosophy. The word that creates faith is an embodied word, and it emphasizes uh, that it comes through physical means because that is how God has always come. After the flood, God's promise came through what? What physical sign? The rainbow. All along, 
God comes to us deeply through physical things. What holds the world together is not finally ethics, not a moral scheme. People use morality against other people. God finally uses morality against us. What holds the world together is sheer gift and promise. And this gift that we hear in Scripture, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. We can receive in that supper that last testament. This is my body. This is my blood given and shed for you. For you. What God is saying in all creation, in every daffodil, in the moonlight, in the person to your right or to your left, what God is saying, I am for you, you receive most clearly in this promise, given and shed. the law as accusing, the gospel as promising and comforting, providing for us even when God is hidden, not absent, hidden. That's what provokes such struggle is not God's absence, but God's closeness. And God who will even go against himself for your sake, truth of the promise is that we are made true. We are verified. Thank you.